Hello, everybody. This is Charlie, and it's the podcast uh, To Hell and Back. And this is, I think, number 33. It's October 17th, uh, 2018, and I'm in Massachusetts. It's 4 o'clock um, p.m., and uh, I will not be on a podcast next week for anyone who ever listens to these live, though I have a feeling most people don't. And uh, this is part two of two podcasts, last one and this one, dealing with uh, the uh, what kind of tools or skills are added in to the DBT uh, overall skills package for uh, when the problem is addiction, so when there's a cr- addictive crises. Um, and so last time I sort of uh, did an introduction of it uh, in a variety of ways, and I'm going to this time um, <clears throat> take off into the seven skills that Marshall Linehan added, but I'm going to make some preliminary comments first. My first comment is um, uh, to say that this is going to be my best podcast ever. So if you don't listen to any others, that's fine. Uh, you can just listen to this one. <laughs> that, of course, is my intention and actually my feeling and I'm going to try, but I want you to know when I say that, that though I'm all out in wanting to do that, at the same time, I'm aware of reality. So it isn't like I have left the world of reality and I'm saying that. I mean, I know there are 4,000 different things that will make this not my best podcast ever, but I want you to know. I mean, and you'll see how this is related to today's topic. Um, but I just, I, in fact, when I do training in DBT, I often head into a training thinking, this is going to be it. This is going to be it, the best ever, as did my high school drama teacher. Not that I did many theatrical productions. I, I, was, <laughs> I tried, but my drama teacher always said to the whole student body before every performance, before every play, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is it. This is really it. In other words, his best ever. So next, uh, my, so my next ha- podcast will be on October 31st or Halloween. So I'll try to think of a way to make, make it both spooky and also move forward with teaching tools for coping with being in hell and getting out of hell, especially emotional hell. Um, and I'll be starting a new module of skills that will probably take me a couple weeks to go through and talk about, um, and it'll be emotion regulation skills. Um, and uh, and I just want a, a reminder to people who don't always listen to these, um, when you hear these skills today, as is true with all of the previous skills uh, podcasts I've done, which is the past few, um, there's no intention here of trying to be a skills class that covers every skill at the level of detail that I would if, if this was a skills class where one takes more time. I'm, tr- I'm giving my perspective, some examples, some ideas, and walking you through the skills so you know what exists, you know what some of my thoughts are about them, and uh, that I always hope that somewhere, somewhere in this, there'll be a skill that'll be uh, actually helpful to you, and I would love to hear back from you about any of this. So today, heading into today, I uh, found myself today earlier today when I started thinking about the podcast I was thinking about um, my friend Sam McCall from seventh grade. Uh, Sam, uh, I, move, I moved to the big city, uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, between sixth and seventh grade, and I was pretty freaked out because I came from a little town in Oregon, and things were very different in the big city. And um, But I did make this really good friend the first year in middle school, junior high school, Sam, and uh, actually Sam ran for class president in seventh grade, and I was his campaign manager. And uh, and he was a smart kid. He was a talented kid. He was a nice kid. Actually, at that point, his father, Tom McCall, was the governor of Oregon. And um, um, he went through, I forget what kind it was, but between seventh and eighth grade, somewhere in there, he had surgery. Uh, significant surgery. I think it was a successful surgery, but it left him in a lot of pain at first, and he went on opiate medication to uh, deal with his pain. And uh, little did uh, most of us know, 
maybe his family knew. I'm not sure who knew. But he continued those opiate medications, and he got addicted to them. And uh, several years uh, into high school, maybe maybe he was 16 years old. I don't know what his age was. I'd have to look it up. But he died of an overdose. And uh, and this was after he and his father actually, as I recall, uh, went on a campaign around Oregon giving talks about uh, his addiction, sharing his experience to try to help other people not get caught in the same kind of opiate addiction. Uh, and he did that, and it was a really uh, good thing to do, and, and his father did that. But, um, but still, then uh, it came back up into his life, and it killed him. Uh, just a disaster, just tragedy. And, uh, and yet one of what now in our current epidemic is uh, not unusual, but still just as tragic and, and in the indicative of the power of this kind of addiction. I also found myself thinking about my father, who, uh, became, who earlier in my life was not uh, addicted to anything as far as I know, but he became an alcoholic after we moved to the big city, Portland, where he worked as a manager of a country club and had to be there during all kinds of hours, including the hours everyone else is off duty and on vacation and on and and playing golf and having parties and having dinner, he'd be there all day and into the evenings. Uh, we missed I missed him as a kid quite a bit then, um, and uh, turned out that it was an occupational hazard that he was so close to alcohol and the bar that was all part of the whole operation there and. He was a very friendly guy and kind of gregarious, and I think he drank socially, and he just drank more and more until actually he became less uh, emotionally available, and he became uh, really would get drunk uh, in a way that he hadn't, at least that I knew, before. And then um, at some point he had a tragic car accident where he nearly killed people, taking them head-on in a car, and it's just devastating for all of us. I was back... Uh, it was during a break from college, and I remember going to uh, the police station where they had him, and then the hospital, and then, uh, oh my God, him having to deal with all this. So we've had it, and, and there's been another family member that had real problems with alcohol. Um, so I grew up with some of this in my life, um, and it feels very familiar to me. Uh, I've just kept an eye on my own drinking. Uh, I've never done much in the way of drugs, but I have drunk but uh and and i may say something about that later but it's never become a kind of an addictive problem um but it, but it, when you drink some like if you have a drink every night if you have a a beer or wine or more than one especially you know if you're really a fine-tuned watcher of your own state it will be indefinitely true that it will change your state and might make you uh uh, less available for certain kinds of things later, like thinking, um, doing things. Um, and finally, I was thinking about an incredibly talented young man that I worked with at one point um, who was really smart, very athletic, uh, popular, well-spoken, a really good guy. And, uh, and he, little did I know how much he was using drugs uh, during our time of work together, but then this came out as a problem, and it just kept plaguing him for years. Um, and with with uh, good rehab and good treatment and good therapy and everything, so it really the power of these things is incredible. So just that, and I just want you to be thinking if you if you have addictions, you can think about yourself during this talk. But if you don't, I want you to think about people in your life that you have known that have had addictions and what the nature of those addictions uh, have been. There's a way in which uh, our understanding, even in the field of mental health and even addiction treatment, there's something that happens that I'm not sure it's fully intended at the beginning, but it, it really part of the culture of thinking about and working with people with addictions somehow separates them from the rest of us. There's some line around people who have addictive disorders that makes them somehow different than people who have other kinds of disorders or just people who are like coping with life, have have the disorder of getting through life safely and hopefully with meaning and, and some joy now and then. Um, 
And so I, I want to, uh, it, it sort of insulates them as if they're a separate category and they're separate means for treatment and they're separate skills for them, even in DBT. But as the point I'm going to make today is as I go through the skills that are sp- supposedly specifically for addictions, they are really for everybody and they are for the issues that are the underlying issues that give rise to addictions and that perpetuate addictions. So they're absolutely applicable to all of us. And I just want to put in a word for, you know, uh, breaking down this artificial barrier. If you ever attend any 12-step meetings, you know, NA, AA, OA, Gamblers Anonymous, uh, Al-Anon, any 12-step meetings uh, in any meaningful way, you will if you pay close attention, you'll find that very little of the meaningful discussion is specifically about the the substance. It's about people's lives, and and it's really about uh, disappointment, heartache. It's about hopes and dreams. It's about values, and it's about being empty and lonely in your life, or angry, or or feeling like a failure, or feeling like you're going to be successful and you just want a decent life. And I found when I first went to any 12-step meetings, I remember coming out of one thinking, you know, 95% of what was just discussed, which I found really interesting, helpful, and sometimes inspiring, is really about just being a human being uh, in relationships. Um, and, and, and then a little bit of it has to do with the drugs or alcohol themselves. Uh, so, I want to give you some of my perspectives of the underlying issues um, and then go into the skills. So, my first point I want to make is that addictive behaviors, think of it this way, they represent one way to cope with a common set of problems that we all face. Some of us face them worse than others. Um, but if you understand it that way, you realize, you know, there's... <laughs> Everybody's joined in this. Um, And addictions include, when we're talking about them, it isn't just substance use. Uh, It's a very wide set of behavioral patterns. In fact, there's kind of a blurry line, I think, around what you might call addictions and what you might call compulsive behaviors or just repetitive behaviors. Uh, Generally, the the definition of addictions is going to be that it uh, involves a repetitive behavioral pattern let's say cigarette smoking, or let's say alcohol use, or let's say extreme exercise. And let's, and second thing is that, it, that that repetitive pattern causes harm either to oneself or to others or both. <laughs> Excuse me. I am still here. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, what a pain. Um, they cause harm. But realize when you're thinking about, well, what does that mean, how much harm? <coughs> that there's a kind of a below the clinical line harm. Like, let's say somebody, if you go to a restaurant, <coughs> you'll see some couple at a table somewhere where one person is on his or her cell phone and the other one's not. And you just, if you watch carefully, it just looks like, wow, that person is like, his cell phone is like an extension of that person. He's totally present with his cell phone. He's engaged with his cell phone. And meanwhile, the woman or man sitting opposite him is is uh, <laughs> sitting there not being attended to. And so, would you call that harm? Well, I would. I'd call that a, a sort of a, a level of harm that doesn't get, you know, headlines. But it, in, the, in a relationship, it causes harm. Uh, if you're addicted to some behavior, it takes you away from the other person. Third criterion is not only is it a repetitive pattern that causes harm, but also it's very difficult to stop the pattern. So there are a ton of these, right? Gambling, drinking, smoking, drugging, um, eating, uh, it's sort of emotional eating, self-cutting, other forms of self-harm, 
exercising excessively, working excessively, whatever. And drawing the line with excessive is sometimes a tough call. Uh, watching, uh, engaging in por- pornography excessively, playing video games excessively, being on social media excessively, watching television, dieting, being totally focused on dieting and repetitive patterns of dieting, losing control in relationships behaviorally, like being addicted almost to um, to uh, loss of control, um, and sometimes other other people being addicted to patterns of, of over-control of behavior and of submissiveness, submissiveness that is really does bring self-harm. So, um, so there's a lot of things, and it's not worth it to me to argue which are actually addictions or not. It's kind of like when in, when there's an addiction and you know a person, you pretty much if you know them intimately, you kind of know which things are addictions. Now, underlying the, these behavioral patterns of whatever kind of addiction it is, uh, there are a couple things that are central. One totally central to this is the relationship to pain. One's relationship to pain. Um, there is a kind of, um, <clears throat> once it's underway, I think an addiction is respo- a response to pain, the perception of pain, discomfort, boredom, loneliness, um, anxiety, irritability, anger, a sense of uh, being at odds with the world. All of these things are sources of pain or uh, discomfort. And addictions uh, really are a, an answer to discomfort because almost all of them uh, substitute the addictive behavior and the state of mind brought about by an addiction for what was there uh, that was uncomfortable. And so in this respect, this is a big one because, um, um, by the way, uh, one way I think about this too is as somebody who practices mindfulness pretty regularly, um, it seems to me that addictions as a response to pain in life is almost at the opposite end of the spectrum uh, as mindfulness as a response to pain in life because the addictions are ways to suppress, ways to reduce, ways to eliminate pain. It's lots of pain eliminators, discomfort eliminators, whereas the approach in mindfulness is to be um, open uh, and curious uh, and noticing um, painful as well as joyful experiences and all kinds of thoughts that are both painful and not so painful. It really uh, approaches pain as another life experience that one just uh, processes uh, without running away. And so they they really are, they're, they're like on a collision course, addictions and mindfulness. And mindfulness treatment for addictions makes a complete amount of sense. Um, and I want to comment on uh, on how we're all related about these things because in our society, in our particular society, and not our, not only our society but a lot of Western <clears throat> societies, there are a million ways to avoid discomfort and to suppress pain. Uh, we're a society of analgesics, of you know pain relievers, of uh, pain eliminators. Um, which, of course, doesn't ultimately treat the pain itself, but it helps us eliminate pain for the time being. Uh, we eliminate pain with drugs, with alcohol, cigarettes, gambling, all the other things I mentioned before, including um, prescribed medication. Uh, so we're always uh, managing our relationship to pain, and I think when you uh, are going to overcome an addiction or recover from an addiction, you have to develop a new relationship to pain. You have to reach out and shake the hands of pain. You have to sort of accept pain coming into your mind, into your body, um, and recognize this is reality. Just as much as when I said I'm going to do the best podcast I've ever done, um, I also have to recognize there's a reality to the fact that there are things that are going to go against that. Um, the second thing, if the first thing is uh, uh, that that underlying addictions is a lot to do with uh, control, with the regulating our relationship to pain, there's regulating our relationship to control, because every day we face situations that are not within our control, but somehow we may feel and act as if that's a big problem, like we should be able to control things, we should be able to control how other people behave, 
um, especially the people really close to us, but also the person just walking their dog down the street. Uh, it can be irritating. We walk our dogs on the street where we live, and some people that don't pay attention to the cues very well bring their dogs up right near ours and say, oh, great, How c- let's have our dogs be friends or hang out with each other. Well, what they don't know is that though, though we have lovely dogs who are really nice, um, especially the older one, I think had trauma earlier in life before he got out of a shelter to us, a rescue dog. And uh, he goes crazy with other dogs and starts barking and wanting to fight. And the other people sometimes don't notice that. And then it's like, Jesus Christ, do they not see this? And and you get upset about that. Or the way that people drive by on the street and they, they drive within one foot of you at 50 miles an hour. It's like, are you kidding me? Um, so that those are just little things that oh, we don't have control over. And if we continue to think we should have control over those things, and it continues to not be the case, and we continue to not do anything to control those things, um, it's another source of pain and discomfort and irritation, and it just goes on and probably um, <clears throat> uh, is another problem with relationship to control. Also, I think that in our culture, based on advertising, based on imagery that permeates our brains from the time we're very little, and now with the addition of technology that's amazing and with us all the time, there is this sense of being able to control a lot. But actually, it, there's an illusion there about how much we can control because it always comes back to who we are and what our experiences are, uh, including the discomforts of what I was just talking about. There will always be things we can't control. And so if we if we get addicted, so to speak, to the idea that we should be able to control the factors that influence us in our lives, boy, it's a it's a deadly situation because we will be repeatedly uh, met with discontrol uh, outside of us, and then then we have to do something to manage uh, how we feel. So the relationship to pain and the relationship to control, of course, as I'm just thinking now, I hadn't thought earlier, mindfulness as an approach to life has also an approach to the idea of control or being out of control, which is to be in the moment, in just this moment, and uh, and to, in one way, accept that this is this moment. This moment is made up of people driving past you on the street really fast when you're walking your dog, and and people who are really insensitive uh, and or just not a good match for you. So it's kind of like just accepting things is one of the cores to uh, treating substance use problems and addictions in general. Um, Okay, so you get the point. Pain, control. um, uh, You know, let me, uh, a recent person I was working with is a, a poignant example of some of this. This is a man who's very lonely, has very few friends, maybe no friends really, and who, um, uh, has uh, really wants a sexual partner, a uh, romantic partner, a life partner, all of those rolled in together, and has tried to get that, and it hasn't worked out yet. I don't. I mean, I think he hasn't been terribly skillful about it, and maybe there's going to be some problems. But you know, at least for now, he's been in a lot of emotional pain about that. And then he did have uh, a relationship with a woman. And he had in his mind an image of what it would be to be with somebody who was appealing, pleasing, and sexual. And it was based on a lot of pornography and just images in our world uh, of what somebody should look like, how they should act, what they should wear, what kind of lingerie they should wear, and all this. And he brings that into the relationship as if he you know, wants to have control not over only what he's doing, but what's the other person doing, and how's the other person behave, and how does the other person look, and this kind of thing, which he uh, intrudes uh, into the other person, thinking he can control that, and it'll help to reduce his sense of loneliness and alienation, because then it'll all fit just like it does in his mind. And when he tries to do that, uh, the other person gets increasingly alienated, and then he gets increasingly upset. Why can't this person do this? He's addicted to control of that situation in order to reduce his own discomfort and to maximize what he thinks of as his pleasure. And uh, in doing so, he causes harm 
and he really has trouble letting go of the control. And that's where the problem is. The problem is the repetitive pattern of behavior, even when it's obvious it's running into trouble and it's causing damage, and then someone can't let go of it. Okay. There's other examples, but I want to move forward to get to the skills. Let me just make a, a sort of a mm, summarizing statement of what I've been saying and then move on to the skills. Um, you might say that it's the same underlying story regardless of the addiction. Uh, the person who is in pain or discomfort of some kind, uh, or and the person who feels that life uh, is not uh, in sufficient control, but who finds it difficult to get rid of that discomfort, difficult to establish that control, but still has the idea that all of that should be possible, is living with a kind of a, an idea that's completely understandable given our society. Completely understandable to think you should be eliminate, able to eliminate pain and able to establish control, and you still can't. And so it's really awful. And you look at other people and think they are, which is also generally not true, uh, from, but it looks like that. And then you find one or more possible repetitive behavioral patterns that you engage in that really takes you out of the mess of the pain, the mess of the, of the lack of control, makes it possible to feel like you can control your state of mind in this moment. Let's say you're an extreme exerciser and you always know if you've got your daily run or your daily workout and you go to extremes with it, it generates a certain state of mind that is removed from your normal daily absorption of the things that make you unhappy and you're in charge of that and in fact you are controlling your mood at this moment and in fact there's nothing so terrible about that unless it goes to excess can't be stopped and causes some kinds of pain including bodily pain but also in relationship pain and loneliness pain and therefore it, it, it continues so that's the general idea and that's why I say this is not that different in some ways uh, than the rest of us. We're all trying to do hard things in our lives. And uh, and we get caught up in uh, certain patterns to try to regulate our uh, pain, our discomfort. And we do things that sometimes aren't always for the best. Um, so, one more point about treating addictions or skills, and then we'll go right through the skills. That, that point is this, that, you know, there's an emphasis even within the DBT written parts in the manual about addictions that makes it sound, though it isn't entirely there, but at some places people think, well, the goal here is abstinence, is to get rid of use of substances, to get rid of excessive use of certain behaviors, and that that's the goal of it. But actually, if that's your goal, it's much harder to make it happen than if your goal is some image of what will happen if you can make that happen. So that you really have to be looking beyond the addiction and, and looking for something that's a value-based thing or it's based on your past or it's based on your hopes and dreams and wishes. And it really is you're kind of like, uh, what will make this worth it? What would make life, my life worth it? And how is it that this addiction is interfering? That's how you want to be thinking about it if you're trying to stop an addiction. Um, just like if you are trying to solve any other thing in your life, you want to have your eye on the prize. And if you have your eye on the prize and really focused on the prize and you're 100% committed to getting the prize, then the things that stand in the way are going to look different than if you just look at them and try to get rid of them. So I just want to make a point for that. And I think in, in substance abuse work, there's a lot of emphasis on being able to uh, envision a value-based life that really helps carry you beyond the addiction. So here we go. That Linehan added in a number of skills uh, to this, and I think of them as applicable to substance abuse as well as to um, life in general as getting through hell or doing hard things. So I want you to think of both of those as we go through. Um, there's a theme through most of these that all, I only thought about this time around in thinking about these. There's a way in which, even though Marshall Linehan doesn't quite put it this way, um, it helps to understand some of these if you're thinking that there are behavioral patterns in a g given person, uh, some of which are, uh, are in competition with others. 
So you've got a behavioral pattern that wants to go for the gold, go for the life worth living, go for, you know, go for you know, value-based, whatever it is you're doing. And you're going to, and you're online, you're in target, that's where you're headed. And that, that's almost as if like that's a person within a person, the behave, set of behavioral patterns that's going to get you success. And then there's a set of behavioral patterns that are going to undermine that, that are in competition with that, that you might say are saboteurs of that first goal. And, uh, and, and, the, and so if you think of the person as almost made up of two competing behavioral patterns, or even uh, if you want to anthropo, anthropomorphize it, uh, one, there's a person, two people within a person. One of them, for instance, wants to give up substances and move on to a different life. And the other one wants to insist on continuing to use substances to eliminate pain and to uh, establish a sense of momentary control. And these are in competition with each other. If you think of it that way, the first several skills that Linehan lays out uh, really make a lot of sense in that. So what's the first one? The first one is called dialectical abstinence, and I started by mentioning it at the end of the last uh, podcast. Um, and so I'll just say a little more about this one. Um, it's a really big one. I mean, this has lessons in it for all kinds of things, and definitely for treating your own addiction, um, but also for doing hard things in life. So I want to try to put across why it is deeply uh, interesting and why it applies to so many things. It basically is like I was just saying. Basically, dialectical abstinence arises from the fact that in the world of substance use treatment, there are two evidence-based approaches, two categories of evidence-based approaches. The first one being the abstinence approach, which has also often been the 12-step approach, which is that the only acceptable thing here is to aim for complete abstinence, never using the substance. Um, and then the other, and, and there's a lot of, there is support for that, especially in that that seems to make it, make relapses less frequent. And then there's this other approach called harm reduction approach. And harm reduction means that you focus on the fact that it's almost inevitable that somebody's going to have slips now and then. And so you want to teach a person uh, a, a variety of skills and approaches so that when they do have a slip, they immediately stop the slip. It's like a stitch in time saves nine. You know, a slip stopped quickly enough will not then lead to a big relapse. So um, these two approaches are both there, and they really are different things because if you're spending your effort, you know, the front of your mind is focused on, let me see what to do if I have slips. It almost has a, a, a built-in assumption there will be slips, and that might make you more likely to slip. And in fact, the research on harm reduction is that your slips will be less profound, but they'll be more frequent. So uh, how do you put these both together? And that's what we mean by dialectical abstinence. Um, and so it really means having a plan for going all out, giving 100% commitment, uh, finding no excuses, not holding back your efforts, uh, all these things, just like in, like in trying to solve any problem. It's really going for the gold and leaving it all on the court or whatever uh, things like that that people say. Um, yeah, if I were to sing a song at this point, which I'm not going to, uh, I didn't write a song for this week, but it would probably be from Sound of Music. Uh, the, the thing that captures the abstinence approach is, uh, is climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every footstep till you reach your dream. And the other words in that song is a song that brilliantly merges the message with the music and the, and the tone. And uh, so it's really so it means you're going to go all out and it means you're going to have a plan for failure. You're going to have a backup plan. If it's a substance abuse treatment, it's going to be a backup plan, meaning a, a sort of a relapse prevention plan. It's going to be a plan that says, okay, if this happens, you immediately call this person. You immediately get away from that. You immediately commit yourself to doing these things that actually get you away from your the images and thoughts about your substance. In other words, you make a list of a bunch of things, a harm reduction plan, and there are samples of it in the handouts 
and worksheets that you work on um, in the skills manual, like really how do you make a plan. This, um, a, a metaphor I find really helpful for this, or uh, an ex- a life example of this, when my kids started playing hockey and they started learning how to skate as hockey players when they were little kids, um, there was one drill that their coach had them do called the Superman drill. And uh, it's where you're skating along on the ice and suddenly you dive, uh, you know, on your belly. Uh, you just go down, dive on your belly and slide across the ice. Um, you take, in other words, you manufacture a fall from skating. And then you, uh, while you're down, you get, while you're still sliding, you get yourself back up and continue to skate. You do that over and over again until you can do that. That is the harm reduction plan. That is the relapse prevention plan in skating. And it, it is incredibly useful to know if you're going to fall, you know what to do when you fall. And that's exactly what this is about, is that you want to have an approach to your life, to some important goal, and in particular to addictions, where you are going to commit all out to stop using or, or to work on certain you know, things you're trying to do that are very hard. And it's very helpful to know in advance and to be prepared that if you fail, if you slip, if you fall, you know what to do. And then it gives you more confidence that you can go ahead and skate all out. You can play all out. You can be abstinent all out because you know if you start to slip, here's what you do. So it's really a kind of a cool idea about life in general, like let's say if you're uh, really wanting to uh, make a close friend and you don't have a really good friend and you make a plan for a friend and you used to think, well, this is just the kind of thing that some people get and some people don't get and I don't get it. It's too bad. Maybe someday there'll be one. But another approach to that is say, no, let's go for the gold. I'm going to do what I can to get a close friend that I'm going to have for life. And you aim high and you start figuring out what, how you're going to do that, what's your plan going to be. This is like your abstinence plan, only it's your sort of go all out for the gold plan. But it really helps if you're doing that. If you're going to go all out and put your heart on the line, that you know that you can cope if you are rejected. Um, anything like that. If you're going to make a business plan and go all out and try to make a new small business work, it turns out that 85% of new small businesses for somebody doing a business for the first time, 85% fail. <clears throat> but then if you keep going, it turns out that of the people who fail, of that 85%, of the ones that then go back and start up a second business, 85% succeed. And so the idea is, yes, you've got to, you've got to learn, you've got to believe, you've got to work on the skills in your mind and in your life to say, okay, I'm going to go all out for this plan, whatever it is, an abstinence plan, a business plan, a relationship plan, uh, a plan to do some, to plan to meditate, a plan to exercise. And I've got to have a, a sort of a harm reduction plan if I fail. Okay. So that's the idea of uh, the first main idea. And it's called a skill in the manual. It's also just a big perspective. Um, which is really to um, split into this effort to go all out and then this plan to uh, to fail, like a, a fail-safe, no, a fail-effectively fail plan. Um, okay. Anything else I want to say about this? See how I mean that this almost assumes that there's like two different patterns in oneself and you really want to attend to, to both it's going to be the the pattern that's sort of um, pushing towards failure you might say it's temptation towards failure and the other is to try to succeed uh-huh. second skill um, clear mind is another skill that involves a kind of a dialectic um, so clear mind is an idea of the following that you're really made of, uh, of there's like two um, states of mind in you with respect to your addiction. And one is your addict mind, 
where you are caught up in acquiring a substance, using it, and, and, and dealing with the consequences of using it, and then again, going into withdrawal, and then uh, acquiring and using and, and, and consequences of using. In other words, your state of mind is driven by this uh, highly escapist, uh, suppressive, uh, analgesic approach that goes way beyond its original intention, and, and then you can't get out of it. Then there's this other state of mind that you could call clean mind. It's the manual. It's called clean mind. And clean mind is it's kind of like when you have stopped using a substance for a few days and you start to feel, God, I can do this. I'm in charge of this. I can really do this. And you start to think that you're, you're able to do it because of willpower. You're able to do it because you're doing it, because you intended to do it and you're doing it and you're the kind of person who does what you're intending to do. And so your clean mind is the idea that I am clean now and I'm going to remain clean. I've had my last slip. And you feel kind of invincible in your fight against your addiction. And you feel immune to temptations that used to bring you down, that as if you've gotten stronger now. And the danger of clean mind is that, you know, is that you, you stop taking so seriously the various uh, temptations and uh, things around you that could bring you down. And you also make assumptions that your mood is going to stay the same and you're going to be with the same people and now you're in a good state. It's kind of a, an illusion that you're living in. You call it clean mind. Now there's something really good about clean mind is that you pull yourself forward with clean mind. You get kind of excited about being able to, uh, to stay clean. But, but the problem with it is that you aren't remembering that just around the next corner is your addiction. That if you run into the wrong location, the wrong person, the wrong social event, if you get into a bad mood or you get really lonely on a certain day or a certain weekend or you go on a trip and there's temptations in front of you, you kind of forget that you are still uh, addicted. You're, you're still suffering from addictions to these things. You've gotten into a behavioral pattern that can easily be back in a heartbeat. And so that clean mind kind of lets you down. Addict mind obviously is destroying. And, uh, and clear mind. And these are like two people within you. The person that naively believes that you can control this with willpower and that you can get yourself out of this and you are now out of it and you'll never slip again. And then this other person, you might say, or this other pattern within you that is ready to be activated in a moment, and it'll bring you down. It'll be your saboteur of the clean mind intentionality. And so what do you want to be? You want to be in clear mind. You want to understand that both of those, and there are ways in the skills manual that help you go over your uh, clean mind features and your addict mind features and the temptations and all these things. They set you up for some of these other skills that are coming once you understand this. And then you're looking for clear mind where you really are one step above both of these patterns where you are aware that addiction is part of who you are and you're aware that clean intentions is part of who you are. And you try to stay in the clean intentions, but you remain aware of the temptations, aware of the downfall, aware that tomorrow is not going to be today and that you are in a moment uh, always at risk. So that's a the kind of a clear mind idea. Um, now, let me just think if there's anything else I want to say about that. Because there are, um, as I say, in the manual, there are ways you spell this out for yourself. Uh, and you identify your own addict mind behaviors. You identify your own clean mind behavioral patterns. Um, and you start to realize that you have to make have to make a list practically of all those things that are going to come back up and catch you from behind, come in the back door just when you think you're clean, um, and uh, and get you. <laughs> See how if you anthropomorphize this, um, it's both uh, unreal, but it's also I think a helpful way to think of it. Next skill: community reinforcement. Now the important thing about this. Now, remember, you've got a, an individual within whom there is an addict, addict mind state, and then there's a clean mind state. In an individual, you've got a person who's going for the gold and complete abstinence, but you've got that same person who is uh, uh, at any moment need, is going to need to deal with a slip and a harm reduction approach. 
Um, and you look at the community in which they are embedded, and you look at which parts of the community, what features of the community are reinforcing them for remaining abstinent, and which parts are reinforcing them for remaining uh, addicted and for having slips and for using. And you, what you want to do, of course, I mean, you want to catalog those, make a list of those, and you want to... Um, uh, identify those things in one's particular community. I don't mean the community in general, but you really have to look at through the eyes of the individual. Is where, where in this community are you reinforced for sobriety? Uh, you know, what's why people going to, uh, 12-step meetings on a very regular basis, getting on the phone and listening to worldwide 12-step meetings that are going on all the time. Um, people being in treatment for substance use, um, people taking antabuse so that it helps reinforce them for not drinking, um, people surrounding themselves with friends that understand that you have an addiction problem and they were not going to feed into the problem. Instead, they're going to reinforce you for not using uh, and for being pleased with that, even though it's difficult. Um, so there's all kinds of things, and you go through in the skill making lists of things that are that are the reinforce addiction reinforcers, and uh, you try to reduce them, and you try to replace them with abstinence reinforcers, sobriety reinforcers, clean, clean mind reinforcers, and um, and you might go further than you usually do about these things if you're doing anything hard in life. Say you're taking on a new challenge, and it's going to take a lot of effort. Same thing. You want to surround yourself with reinforcers for the new and difficult, challenging behavior. And you don't want to be reinforcing the saboteurs in you that are going to stop you from doing it. Right? So um, that's the main points I wanted to make about that. There's a lot more one could say about it in particular. But, you know, if you take your own effort to do something really hard in life seriously and you not only do you look at your intentions and look at your own behavioral patterns but you look at what's around you and whether you're being reinforced like people who try to meditate a lot but find they can't it helps if you are in a, a meditation community i'm in one that meets once a week and it, and i just find it does enormous things for me even though it's just once a week uh, reminding me reinforcing me perpetuating some thinking it's just this once a week thing is really important. When I did another really hard thing, of I wanted to uh, swim a lot when I had a bad arthritis in my hip and I could no longer run. It was hard to get myself to swim regularly. It wasn't something that I naturally loved, even though once I'm in, I, I can enjoy it. Um, but really what got me was once I started in a group. Uh, it was called Master's Swim. I had no idea what it was like. But when I arrived at six in the morning at this middle school swimming pool, and there were five people lined up at the end of every lane ready to go, I thought, holy shit, it's like six in the morning, it's dark out, do these people, what are, what's everybody doing here? Well, they were all swimming, and they're doing an hour and a quarter or an hour and a half swim with a workout and with a coach there um, for minimal cost. It was sort of an amazing deal. And, uh, and I used started going to it, I thought, how am I going to ever sustain this? And I did sustain it largely because of the people in my lane would give me a hard time. I mean, we cared about each other. We cared about each other's swimming. We got to know each other some, and uh, and we gave each other a hard time when we didn't show up. And all in all, I felt like it was going to be a disappointment to the group if I didn't show up. And it was enormously helpful to me. So in a way, I found a community reinforcement for doing a very hard thing. Uh, and overcoming that 5.15 in the morning feeling of what the heck am I doing getting out of bed at 5.15 in the morning when it's dark to go swimming. And um, I don't know, it got me to do that for years. Okay. Um, next skill uh, is called, bur there's two related ones. One's called burning bridges and the other is called building new bridges. So burning bridges, it's kind of like uh, completely understandable. And once again, with reference to the uh, two people inside the person. Um, so burning bridges, it's a little bit like the reinforcement idea in your community. This time it's behavioral patterns, but it means 
to eliminate from your life any and every connection to potential triggers or addictive behaviors. You're just burning old bridges. Um, really requires openly, genuinely facing the reality of the bridges that keep you using. It's really like you want to starve the supply lines of your enemy. And if your enemy is your addiction, you've got to think of all the supply lines that your enemy has. You know, where you go, what you do, who you're with, uh, how tired you get, what you have to eat. And all the, there's all these connections. You know, do you talk to, do you hang out with people who are still using you hang out with people who are still upsetting you or that come from that era during which you got seriously addicted? Do you have alternatives where you can build new bridges? Um, so burning your bridges is, uh, there's a whole set of skills associated with it where you make a list of everything in your life that makes addiction possible and you systematically go through those and you get rid of all of these bridges. And it really requires commitment. You get rid of phone numbers and email addresses. You get rid of other contact information. Um, you get rid of participation on social networking sites that might collude with you in your addiction. You get rid of clothes and household items that are associated with addiction, even if they aren't directly addiction-related items in general. Um, you get rid of any plans financially or cash that you usually have been using to fuel your addictions. Um, and so you go on and on. You know, you get rid of all paraphernalia related to addictions. And so you really have to um, and disconnect from all of the bridges uh, for addictions and, uh, and then um, uh, take that seriously. And then the building new bridges is that you create uh, new images for yourself, new, you know, associated with a non-addictive lifestyle. Or if you're doing something really hard in your life, some other thing other than trying to deal with addictions, you really have to sort of try to bring into your mind, bring into your senses. This includes, you know, visual, visual images. Uh, let's say you want to, uh, you're aiming to be in the Olympics or whatever is your version of the Olympics. And it's an athletic event. You might really, it might be helpful if in your room at home you have pictures of the images of success in your sport, uh, mentors, uh, people you admire. Uh, it's really like so that you can really get yourself going like that. You might, there might be music that helps you feel like you're on the road to success. I had a patient who um, dealing with lots of difficulties in life, mental health problems and addictions, who uh, it really is helpful if she regularly watches the movie Rocky. Uh, like it just, it spoke to her so deeply that even though she's seen it enough that she can probably repeat every line in it, watching Rocky is like, oh my God, she's back on her game. And so, uh, and people have certain songs that are inspirational, helps them get back on their game. There may be people having certain smells uh, that actually make you feel like, you know, this is a different space than where you are in your addiction. Uh, so you have a, maybe you are, crave a cigarette. And this is in the manual. It's recommended like something like this. You know, maybe what you want to do is imagine being on a beach and what the visual images of being on a beach and the smells of the beach are that are very fresh and refreshing, uh, to have those in mind to compete with the ones related to cigarette smoking. Um, in this building new bridges, there's, uh, it could have been elsewhere in the manual, but there is mention of urge surfing. And this is a very dialectical skill in that you include in the same image, you know, both beings within you. The saboteur that is really uh, in favor of uh, escape and suppression and addiction. And the saboteur is represented in your visual image in your mind as uh, waves in the ocean. They just keep coming, you know, and they will. They'll just keep coming and they come and then they're quiescent for a while and then they start coming again. So you've got these waves, but also in the image is the person coping with those waves trying to stay on track 
to go for the gold, to go for abstinence, to go for whatever is the goal of their life, the life worth living. And so, you know, that person has an image of being a surfer. The surfer is a skillful person who can uh, be in contact with these waves because they will come into you anyway and rides on top of the waves but doesn't go down under and get caught down in the waves and you sort of imagine okay if you're being beset by the waves of addiction and craving and urges in you you can then say okay i'm going to do urge surfing you close your eyes and return to an image you've already practiced of just picturing yourself surfing you might even uh, watch on uh, on your computer you know some images uh, some moving images of somebody surfing successfully and think yeah i'm riding these waves and i'm not going under so that'd be a a way of um, retraining your brain so that when urges come the next thing is to do urge surfing the final skills are uh, alternate rebellion and adaptive denial and they're also very interesting. Uh, alternate rebellion, and it also is a, something that you do in detail. You make lists of things. You make lists. Uh, if you first ask yourself if any component of your addiction is because of being rebellious. Rebellious against society, against your family, against certain values that you don't like, uh, etc., against authoritarian things. Like if, that's, if that is part of what's fueling your addiction, then this is the skill for you because you really can benefit from um, uh, letting go of using substances as your means for rebelling, but don't let go of rebelling. But then you need to find alternative means for rebellion. And actually, I went online, and you, you, if you just type in and on the computer on a search engine, uh, alternate rebellion, uh, you can get hundreds of examples. And they range from, you know, maybe you want to be rebellious without using substances by by dressing in clothes that you want to wear but that have been other people have have not liked, or having or getting a uh, piercing, uh, a tattoo, uh, acting unconventional in situations, uh, so that there's an edge to you. You're not just caving in and going along with all conventionalities. You're, you're sort of being your own person, but you're not using substances as the way to do it. So that's that skill. The final skill is adaptive denial. It's a really interesting one. You almost have to um, let go of the whole idea of being logical or rational. Um, you really, once you, um, you, when you are starting to have the urge and craving for an addictive for whatever is your addiction, to do it or to ingest it or to shoot it up or whatever it is, you have to transform your mind into actually thinking that there's something else you want, not that. It's almost like a linguistic exercise. No, you see, I, I want to shoot up. No, actually, I don't. I actually want a cup of tea that I take five minutes to make carefully with all of my tea paraphernalia. And that's going to be even better than shooting up. And you have to almost like convince yourself. And so this is, an, this is a last-ditch skill. It's not an easy one. And you don't want this to be something you rely on too heavily because it creates a problem of its own. But the idea is that you're able to use the power of your mind, almost like hypnotic suggestion, to say, no, you don't want a cigarette. You actually want a stick of gum. No, you don't want to shoot up. You actually want, um, you know, to go do a headstand in the living room. And actually, that's even better. And you have to sort of like suspend logic and convince yourself that there's something you're doing that actually is better than or at least as good as. And that's why it's called adaptive denial. You're denying the truth of how effective the substance is of, of meeting your current urge um, but you're but you're doing it adaptively and you're denying it and you're replacing it with something else okay those are them those are all of them those are seven skills for treating uh, for uh, helping with addictions and uh, along with the entire treatment manual all of which can be used for treating addictions because we're basically treating emotion dysregulation and problems in relationships. 
And those are the underlying problems, not the addiction itself. So there you go. That's within the skills manual. I just wanted to cover those. And by having covered those, I've now covered uh, the uh, all of the mindfulness skills and all of the distress tolerance skills. I'm away next week teaching a DBT intensive workshop, and then I'll be back the following Wednesday on Halloween to, te- to begin teaching emotion regulation skills or how to change your relationship to your own emotions. Okay? So I wish you all well. Um, during the next podcast, if you want, you can dress up in your costumes. Bye.